the rest of us are going to be turning to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, first New Testament book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, it goes like that. Matthew 6, we're going to look at verse 10 today on page 811, but before we do, I, I just, whenever, I, <clears throat> whenever we sing that song, I'm so grateful for Andrew Peterson for introducing it or writing it or whatever, however he was involved, I don't really know, but... It reminds me, it's hearkening from uh, the book of Revelation, what our adult study is on this, afternoon, this morning, late morning. And uh, there is this scene where the Apostle John is uh, captured and carried up and seeing a vision of what will be and what is, what will be. And there's a scroll with seven seals, a significant scroll, but there's no one found in heaven or on, or on earth who's worthy to open the scroll. And it says that G- John began to weep. And not a little weeping, he says he was weeping loudly. Weeping loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. The scroll must have symbolized something significant in the phases of God's lordship and making of this universe. It's extraordinary that of all the planets in the solar system and in the universe, the cosmos, there is a single speck that resist its master and maker and lord and there's a handful of critters on this speck and they're birds they groan because of the vice regents the men or women made in god's image who have rebelled against him and the scroll is describing god's work as the lamb of god strides upon the stage of human history to enact the work the program of god to redeem slaves from bondage and to bring us into the glorious new heavens and new earth. I don't know the fullness of what all the symbols and revelation mean. And if you ask Mr. Bruce later, he doesn't either. <laughs> Though they'll study it. And that's worthwhile because they do teach us something about our God. In this scroll, it says, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I think we need to pray before we start uh, learning how to pray. So let's just cry out to this mighty one. Our Father, we, we cry out to you through the name of Jesus. We set aside our agenda. We, each of us, have various papers probably locked in certain compartments in our house that are important or precious or vital to say something about us or what we want to happen when we die or whatever. But there's a scroll that has seven seals that describes what will happen when you die. Jesus, you have already died. You have already risen. You are now on the throne above all thrones. You are called in the scriptures the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How can it be that right now that's not present, not occurring on this planet? There are many who thwart you, many who oppose you. Even in our own lives, we have at times been out of sync with you and have rebelled individually and perhaps even corporately defying you. Lord, let it not be. We pray, as we will learn today, thy will be done. O maker, make something of us. Forgive us our sins, which are many. Cleanse us from our iniquities. 
take our hearts, a great potter, and as it were, potter over us, that is, form us and gently press us and squeeze us into the likeness of Christ, the more that we see of Jesus, the more we want to be like him, to be his, to bow in allegiance permanently to such a mighty king. And grant that we might be involved in the program of bringing heaven on earth, salvation to those who are deaf to you, blind to you, dead to you, that you might do a mighty work even this hour in saving some. And now, God, open our eyes. By your spirit, give us clarity, give us illumination. And all that I might speak boldly, earnestly, zealously for you, as befits the mightiness of who you are. We thank you that you are worthy. Where no, no one else was, you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In Matthew 6, verse 10, we read these words, Your kingdom come, your will be done. <clears throat> That's our, our text today. We're studying how to pray. Uh, we started in Luke's gospel uh, some weeks back now. And um, I'd like to look at uh, Matthew's gospel because uh, Matthew is talking about um, prayer as well. He records that Jesus apparently was a, a, a wandering and itinerant preacher. He had a certain sort of uh, set of things that he taught more than likely at every or most places that he was visiting because he went from village to village. They did not have YouTube back then. <laughs> So there was no record uh, that they could pass along, people couldn't tune in, and that sort of thing. So what he taught in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel, is likely a series of things that he would speak at each, if you might think of it in our culture, revival meeting. Right? At each time that he would go around, he would, of course, revive the dead, heal the lame, give sight to the blind, which you want to talk about drawing a crowd, that'll do it. Amen? He had power on earth, uh, like no one else has or did before, and he still has power. Now he has dispersed it through his disciples. He once said, uh, greater things than you'll do than these, because my spirit is upon you. The word is powerful, uh, and we seek a God of great power. And so in, God, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a record of Jesus' teaching. He didn't have to always be asked, how should we, how should we pray? And in Matthew's Gospel, he offers it right away. He saw the wisdom of teaching people how to pray. And in his uh, teaching rhythm or uh, typical order of things, he also taught people how to pray. And this is how he taught them to pray or what he taught them to pray. It's in Matthew 6. I'm going to start in verse, you know what, I'm going to start in verse 5 because that's when he says, begins talking a few, a few paragraphs, a few sections on prayer, though we'll look only at verse 10 and one line actually of verse 10. But it says this in Matthew 6, verse 5, that when you pray, Christ preached, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We'll get to that part uh, some weeks from now. But for now, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. Or in our prayer, thy will be done. We use the older English uh, to... uh, to say that often. Thy will be done. Your will be done. What does that mean? A couple, three or four things I'd like to share with you. When you pray, thy will be done, this may surprise you, but basically what that means is you're saying, I love you, God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the, the, the Lord's Prayer never says, I love you, God. Never says it in those words, though I hope you say that often to your Father in heaven. But this small phrase, thy will be done, is saying, I love you, God. How so? Well, even our verse that we memorized talks about that, obeying God's commands. If you, Jesus once said in John's Gospels, if you love me, you will obey my commands. How do you show love to God? You obey his commands, right? So if you're saying, thy will be done, you're saying, I want to put my loves in the right order. And I'm about to do the thing that everyone knows I'm about to do, right? You got to put your what? Your buttons in the right order. If you get your buttons out of order... Your shirt's askew. You look like a mess. Quickly check, guys. Make sure you're not a mess, right? Uh, are you a mess, right? If you have your loves in the right, wrong order, you're completely disoriented. And that's really the main trouble that, that human beings have on our planet right now is we have our loves out of order apart from Christ. I think the, the genius of Jesus Christ is this, that he was able to distill 750,000 or 800,000 words in English, something like that, into two simple statements. And the greater genius was not just that he could boil both testaments, all of it down to two statements, but he even put those two statements in order. In order. That is what? What is the great commandment? What is the key? If I don't have time to read the Bible, what is the the core of the core of Jesus? He was asked that question and he said this, Love the Lord your God. With all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That is extraordinarily insightful. And if that's all you hear today, that's sufficient. Because that will drive you to your knees. It will drive you to Christ. Who alone fulfilled both of those completely and perfectly. We must put those things in order. When we pray, thy will be done, you're putting God first. You're clearly putting him before yourself. You're you're putting his agenda. Lord, would your agenda occur in my life and in this world, please? Whatever we might say our priorities are, our priorities are uh, revealed by how we spend our time, what has our attention, what has our monies. Those are the things that really have our attentions. Our actual priorities are reflected also in how we pray or whether we pray. And notice the content of Jesus' prayer. And, and in other places he says, my food, this is John, I think it's 434, uh, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. 
Or, or another one, uh, John 6, 38. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus is the very one, the only one really, who not just said that, but meant it and did it and did it all the way. All the way. Part of growing up in grace and godliness is increasingly doing what you say in your prayer. That is, working it out that you will do what God has asked, that you know his will, and you're involved in the process of implementing it. And that's why when you say, thy will be done, you're declaring, I love you, God. There's a book by uh, Dr. Brian Chappell, a man who was a guy who taught me to pray at, at Covenant Seminary. And it's a great title. It describes this orientation of Christ's prayer uh, beautifully. The book title is this, Praying Backwards... Transform your prayer life by beginning in Jesus' name. You don't have to read the book. You just got the whole book. It's a great, I mean, it's a good book. But I mean, like, sometimes titles are just anointed by God and they explain what actually is in the book. That's what this one is. Pray backwards. Transform your prayer life by beginning in Jesus' name. Now, we end often in Jesus' name. And there's a good reason for that. Jesus himself said in uh, John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Ask in my name, I'm going to do it, he just said. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, it's very important that you don't take his words and then screw it up. Do you understand? Because the first half of the prayer makes it clear that his agenda trumps your agenda. So you're praying in the Father's name, you're praying in Christ's name, that you'd have certain things done. But you're not going to prattle on and, and do certain like, oh, I don't know if you've ever, ever slipped into your prayer sort of patterns and, and something gets answered once and so you, you kind of copy and paste the, that type of prayer or that specific phrase, hoping that it will happen again because God answered it that last time. That's how the Gentiles work. Their whole order of worship in the Roman way was this that they would have a certain thing and if it if something great happened and blessed the people blessed the nation they would re- repeat that aspect of their service to gods to the gods and they just keep developing these these rituals because they didn't understand how god worked they thought he was fickle they thought they were fickle and so they would try different things but jesus says very clearly do not heap up empty phrases as the gentiles do instead Pray, I love you, God, thy will be done. To say, thy will be done, is to say, I love you, God. It is also to, to invite God to exercise what I call his good cleverness. His good cleverness. Notice the first half of the, the whole thing is, is oriented toward God goes first. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first half of the prayer is all God first. It's ordered rightly. The second half is give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. Lead us. Deliver us. Do you see? And we really do need to pray backwards. We do need to begin with God's agenda. I have found that when I begin with God in my prayer, especially when I'm anxious and I'm worried and I don't know what's going to happen, I'm worried about someone that I love and care for, uh, it's, it's easy to immediately rush to that specific need because I feel it very intensely. But when I begin with, with Christ, when I begin with God's agenda, it actually modifies how I pray for that situation as well. Putting God first even in their need, which can be very intense. To pray, thy will be done, is to invite God to exercise his good cleverness in your life and lives around you, in the world around you. 
One of the reasons people pray to God is because they don't know what to do. I don't know if you've reached the end of your rope, as they say, if you've gotten to the end of your intelligence, your competence, if Uncle Google, like a good friend calls Google Uncle Google, if when you get to the point where even Uncle Google can't help, you're in trouble, right? <laughs> Have you got to that place where, like, I don't know what to do, uh, to say thy will be done is to admit implicitly, I don't have 100% of what it takes. I don't have the resources, or maybe I don't even know what to do if I have the resources. I don't know what direction to go. I don't know what to make with my life. I don't know what to do with this situation. But God, you do. That's what it is. I don't know, but you do. Thy will be done. It's to admit you're not smart enough, and you need God's cleverness, his good cleverness. He's not you know, mean-spirited in, his, in our lives. He works for our good. He does amazing things. God, have your way. I love God's prayer here through Christ because the, the, this beautiful prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, is partly what makes it so beautiful and such a genius thing is you don't have to have an education to preach it or to, or to, uh, sorry, to pray it. Even a child can memorize. In fact, honestly, children are better at memorizing than adults, aren't they? <laughs> Even a child can memorize the Lord's Prayer and can pray it and actually pray it, not just recite it. So you don't have to be, you know, decades of, you know, I don't know, wear robes or something like that, be, be far along in your journey. You can pray at very beginning. And education is not required. What might be required is desperation to pray, thy will be done. I think we're reluctant sometimes to pray the Lord's will because we don't really want it. Or we suspect he might send us somewhere. Like the Timbuktu. Anybody want to go to Timbuktu? <laughs> or that's what, I don't know where even where Timbuktu is, but that's the saying, right? Go, don't send me there, Lord, wherever there is, right? You're worried that he'll send you there, so you're kind of reluctant to pray that. But when you get to the end of yourself and you're desperate, thy will be done, God begins to move. It might also require some dedication, like I said earlier. When you pray thy will be done, there is a devotion or a love for God, a truly desiring his will. The third thing I would say is to say thy will be done is also to volunteer to help it happen. Well, someone may object, well, can anyone really know what God's will is? There's a little uh, quote I wanted to share from D.A. Carson. This is a little book, but it's a really helpful one. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's used in some of our discipleship training um, curriculum and system. But this is a really good saying. We are to order our lives by the light of God's law, his word, not by our guesses about his plan. We're to order our lives by the light of God's law, not by our guesses about his plan. If you ask, do we really know what God's will is? If you mean by that, in a few minutes, it's September 10th, I'm about to turn left or right probably outside of Weary Road. What will happen? What, what will happen, Lord? Will I get hit by a semi-truck? Do I turn left? Do I turn right? What should I do? If you're looking for that kind of guidance, like specific intel, you're really like trying to get uh, guidance on God's mysterious hidden will, uh, that's not what this prayer is about. That's not what he's doing. But if we are asking, what is your desire, O God? That we can know quite well. 
There is what God, this is confusing, but the word will is used in a variety of two different key ways with respect to God. But there's basically what God allows to happen. It is true that God is the King of kings, the Lord of the lords. He is the sovereign over all things. Nothing will happen on this planet that he does not tacitly allow to happen by not intervening. He is supernatural. He can walk onto the, the platform of human history and do things, roll up his sleeves and take, sleeves and take care of the business. But for whatever reason, he mercifully has given us uh, free will. He's given us the ability to make choices that really have consequences. And uh, he allows us to make decisions. And if uh, God were in charge, you may see other things would happen. But he is going to be in charge one day, fully and completely. We read that in the book of Revelation. But we are, are his, his children, and we must pursue his word, seek it, dig into it, because it is clear, God's word is clear if you really want to, to search it out and know it. Now I want to warn you, like if you're if one of those, if you're in those seasons where you're like, I'm reading the Bible, but pastor, I just can't make sense of it. I can't make up and down work. I don't know what to do. Let me urge you to suspect your sneaky heart. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're trying to find God's will. And should I marry? Should I this? Should I that? You know, big questions too. Suspect your sneaky heart. Here's what I mean by that. God's word is absolutely clear if you read it to find it and do it. That last part is very, very vital. If you're going to use God's word as sort of another thing, and you don't really ever intend to do it, I can tell you that subconsciously, one way or another, you will read it but not find it. And if you do find it, you're just like, ah, pretend not to find it, so you don't have to do it. You have to read it intending to do God's will. That's why when you pray, thy will be done, it's not just a statement that you pray, you are asking God to do it, you are volunteering, you're submitting or surrendering yourself uh, to do it. In Matthew 7, 21, it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You have a vested interest in doing the will of God, in seeing God's will worked out in your life. Well, you say, but pastor, I thought I was saved by repentance and faith. You are. But, and repentance and faith is demonstrated by your obedience. It's demonstrated by fruit on your life. You know? You know a tree by its fruit. Jesus also said that. Right? Repentance and faith leads somewhere, causes something. You're either alive or you're not. You're either growing healthy fruit or you're rotten. You must surrender to the will of God. That is, you must pursue it in, his script, in the scriptures, understanding it, and try to work it out. You ask this question, if he were in charge, what would he choose? That's the will he's talking about. What does God desire? Another person might object, well, come on, what's the point of praying? God's in charge. He's going to get his way no matter what. And that's true in a sense that God ultimately wins, but it's very evident in the places we live right now and the relationships we have and the places we work for and the, the neighborhoods we live in, that God is not getting his desire, his will done in every single situation, every single life. Many are thwarting him. It is true that God has access to the heart of the king, but there are many kings who are doing evil, wicked things that do not delight his heart. Is that not true? It is true. I don't understand why God should bear with us, why he should show such long-suffering and patience with sinners, but I'm a sinner who's thankful that he is patient. And I'll tell you this, that him having been patient with me as I was wandering astray, he has won my heart all the more. Now that I see he is right, now that I see he is good, now that I have forsaken my sins. 
He is astonishing in his mercy, and I I long for his agenda in my life. Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done, because his desires are not always followed. Even Jesus said that in Matthew 18, 14. Whoops, I went too fast. Uh, So Jesus is saying, he's talking actually about, um, well, he's talking about me. He's talking about pastors and elders or teachers, those who would have the gumption to get up and speak and to lead, and he warns those who would lead Be careful you do not lead the little ones astray. It'd be far better to have a millstone put around your neck and be tossed in the ocean than that you lead a little one astray. And then he goes on and says this, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Beloved, are not little ones perishing though? Being led astray by sin? They are. Then why? His desire is that they not be perishing, that they not die in their sins apart from Christ, that they not be misled. I mean, even now, like there are churches with steeples, with, with crosses on them that are saying exactly different than I would pro- proclaim. And the question is, someone has to be wrong. You can't both be right if you both call certain things sin or not sin. You know, that someone's wrong. Someone has to be wrong. Someone is saying what God would say if he were here, and some aren't. And the question is, where are you? Where are we in that? We should tremble when the little ones are led astray. It's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think partly when you pray, thy will be done, you are volunteering to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, that you would be helping the little ones. And they're not just little, like infants and children. They are those because they're the most easy to prey on. But there are adults in our sweet area that do not know their left hand from their right hand into the things of God, right? They are little too. They need someone to speak up. If you're going to pray, thy will be done, you need to know that you are working with God, partnering with him in reaching the perishing ones. He does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you know what's extraordinary? I think it's extraordinary that God involves us, invites us in his program. I like what Jesus said. Uh, It still inspires me in Luke 22... 42, Father, he said, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying so intensely that he's, his sweat is now mingled with blood. It's that intense for him. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father, not my will, but yours be done. He's involving us in that, to take up our cross daily, to join the agenda of the living God in implementing his will on this earth. The kingdom of God is an invasive power. It is an, it is invasive the force uh, of God through his people through the church. It is an outpost, a colony of the king and will always face the rage of Satan and of darkness and of lies. I was reading in Proverbs uh, just today in 29 where it says that the wicked hate the upright. The crooked hate those who are straight. They're offensive to them. They want to obliterate them. But The gates of hell, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church, against the profession that Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee should bow before him in repentance and faith. I think when we pray, thy will be done, we must be careful and not 
make it wishful, like, oh, I wish it were done, but it's all beyond me, and frankly, I'm not very much involved in it. You know, that, that's not the time or the tone in which this is to be prayed. Thy will be done is an imperative. It's, a, it's kind of a passive imperative. I keep saying these Greek things are odd. It's another odd verb. It is God, please, please, I beg you, I urge you, you get your way now, here, in me, around me, through me, with us, in our church. There's a guy I studied a while back. Uh, his his uh, testimony is rather remarkable. A guy named James Fraser, and he's that's him on the right hand side uh, uh, from Great Britain. And he went to the Lisu or Lisu. I'm not sure how you say it. Uh, the people in Southwest China with uh, a mission called China Inland Mission. This is a hundred years ago in the early 1900s. In the late 1800s, he's working there, and he said this. And I think it's it's quite uh, quite interesting, especially given his being on the sort of the, the cutting edge, the, the front line of, you might say, of the battle of reaching the lost. He said this, we must indeed submit to the will of God. Again, he mentions the verse we just read. But we must resist the devil too. That's from James 4.7. The fact that the enemy comes upon us in force is no proof that we are out of the line of God's will. The constant prefixing of, if it be thy will to our prayers is often a mere subterfuge of unbelief. The submission to God is not, sorry, true submission to God is not inconsistent with boldness. Let that settle in your heart. True submission to God doesn't make you weak. It makes you as bold as a lion. Makes you as bold as a lion. Psalm 119 talks about having the liberty of being on the path of God. Now, it's a narrow path, and if you're walking with Christ, actually, as you grow up in Christ, it seems to narrowing, it seems to get narrow. But I tell you, if you're in the center of God's will, my, your heart will like burst like a lion roaring because you know you're in the center of God's will without any shadow of doubt, and you're able to seize with prayer God's power. It says that the kingdom of God comes suddenly, violently, bursting forth. You know you're in his will. And so you, you say things that, that sound to other ears as bold and audacious and even ungodly because you're on his agenda. You don't make demands like, God, you're going to do this and that. You don't. This is not, a, not that kind of abuse. This is rather, I know I'm about his agenda. I know I'm working on the kingdom of God and wanting it to, to come and my, his will to be done in my life. And so that gives me a boldness in prayer. And you lay hold of God, not because he's unwilling, because he's willing. Jesus said these ex- extraordinary, audacious things like, pray in my name and I'll do it. I mean, that's... He doesn't say, I might do it. I maybe will do it. It's a promise. If we're in his will, if we know his word, if we are on his agenda, that he will listen to us and and, and respond when we cry out to him in his name and through his blood. To say that will be done is also an exercise of faith. And I'll end there with that. True submission to God is not inconsistent with boldness. When you say thy will be done, it is an exercise of faith. In 1 John it says this, if I can bring that up next, 5, 14, and 15. And this is the confidence. We're talking about boldness and confidence before God and in this world. Uh, before watching men and women. Before your children. Knowing that you're on the very spot, the very place at the step where God would have you to be doing what you should do in his kingdom agenda. When you're there, this incredible boldness and confidence and courage exists in that moment. What kind of confidence? This. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we've asked of him. Because for who is this one we're crying to? It's not some president. It's not some boss who gives you a few dollars here and there. It's not a few this or that that you have. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's a way of saying he owns absolutely everything. There's every, every grasshopper belongs to him. Now, we don't fight over who owns grasshoppers here. But even the stuff that we don't fight and clamor over, he owns. How much more all the things that are powerful and useful to the human beings that flurry about and scurry about on this planet. He owns absolutely everything. He actually owns every single cell in your body. And every single molecule that is made up of atoms, as far as we can tell, all of those have his name stamped on them. All of it. And then you wonder, in doubt, niggles in, and gets in you like you ask. You want to ask a bold thing, but you hedge your bets, because what if it doesn't happen? And what if it means it doesn't happen? It could shake my faith. Baloney, put your eyes on Jesus Christ and you'll be fine. Because he will direct you. He will guide you. He will give you the boldness of a lion. And in a time when many are running because they're worried about a rumor about, a, oh, there's a lion in the streets. Ah! Oh, there might be something bad happening. Ah, well, baloney, there's bad happening every day. Relax. Jesus is on his throne. He didn't promise it'd be easy and comfortable. Now, he promised he would win. He promised he would win. You just have to be on his agenda. He just have to be on his agenda. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be collateral damage. My goodness, any war has casualties. And there have been many who've been martyred for Jesus. And this day, I am certain they do not regret their death in his name. If they're in his presence, they know. To say thy will be done is an exercise of faith. I want to read in closing one, one uh, comment, a little more extended comment. This is from a book uh, called With Christ in the School of Prayer by Andrew Murray. I know some of you have read it. It's a, a gem in, in learning about prayer. I think he was a man who served a pastor, I think it was South Africa. It was, I think it was South Africa. And uh, the, the sentence I wanted to point out to is this little paragraph. It says, the power both to obey and believe depends on hearing God's voice this way. Now, as soon as I typed this up, I realized I have to tell you what he meant by this way. So now I have to read the page. I'm sorry. You'll, you'll have to bear with me. And if, if this is too much to read... Oh, well, I'm in charge. <laughs> All right, I got to read a whole paragraph before I get to the quote that I wanted. And I just want to whet your appetite with this. Some of you have seen uh, some in our fellowship since February or January of 2021 uh, see a revitalization, a deepening of our walk with Christ. These two paragraphs describe what God did and is doing in our lives as, in, as uh, we've been revived. So if you wish you were closer to Christ and deeper and more useful to him, more engaged in his work, listen carefully. Embedded in this paragraph or two is something truly precious. Listen. Andrew Murray writes, This hearing the voice of God is something more than the thoughtful study of the word. One can study and gain knowledge of the word having little real fellowship with the living God. But there is also... A reading of the word in the very presence of the Father and under the leading of the Spirit in which the word comes to us in living power from God himself. It is to us the very voice of the Father, a real 
personal fellowship with him. The living voice of God enters the heart, bringing blessing and strength and awakening the response of a living faith that reaches back to the heart of God. The power both to obey and believe depends on hearing God's voice in this way. The chief thing isn't knowing what God has said we must do, but that God himself says it to us. The presence of God himself as the promiser, not the knowledge of what he has promised, awakens the faith and trust in prayer. When you come to see that it's Christ says this, not just generically, but to you, to me, suddenly you know he's present, he's guiding you, he's giving you direction, he's leading you, and you pray with boldness. You live with boldness, knowing God is with me. God is guiding me. God is working his will out in me. I have only to submit and follow him. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. To say thy will be done, to review my outline, uh, to say thy will be done is first to say I love you, God. It is secondly to say I invite you, God, your good cleverness and guidance in my life, your insight, your direction. Thirdly, it is to say, when you say thy will be done, it is to volunteer, to implement God's word, God's will in your life. And then fourthly, it is to exercise faith. Exercising faith is a tricky thing. I read uh, of this, it was, uh, I read it in a place, in a, in a man who by no means is a kind of name it, claim it, um, prosperity gospel kind of mongerer. There are those. But he's talking about Martin Luther, that great reformer of the church that God used powerfully in the 1500s. Listen to this account of how Luther prayed. And this is the latter, latter Luther in his last few years of his life after God had already done a great work and was doing a great work. Listen to how he prayed. In 1540, Martin Luther's great friend and his assistant, Frederick Myconius, he became sick and was expected to die in just a few days or hours. On his deathbed, Frederick wrote a brief farewell, a little kind note. His hand was really shaky. It barely came out and was very, very barely legible. But the little letter was made it to Luther, and Martin Luther read, read it, and he instantly wrote down in his more bold script, his more determined and confident script, this reply. I command thee in the name of God to live. Because I still have need of thee in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that thou art dead, but will permit thee to survive me. For this I am praying, this is my will, and my will will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God. Now that sounds quite shocking, but the little note went to Myconius, and he'd already lost the ability to speak, but he was able to read it or have it read to him. He revived recovered completely, and would actually outlive Luther by two months over the next six years and two months. James Montgomery Boyce, and uh, that's where I got this story from, this illustration from history in the church. His response to this was this. We are never so bold in prayer as when we can look into the face of God and say, my father, I do not pray for myself in this situation, this thing. 
I do not want my will done. I want thy name to be glorified. Glorify it now in my situation, in my life. And do it in such a way that all men will know that it's of thee. I don't know about you, when I read counts like that, when I hear thy will be done, that does not encourage subterfuge in my heart. It instead encourages a boldness, because there are saints, some of who are very strategic in the kingdom of God here in leading our worship, who need the work of Almighty God to save and rescue them. And we should pray with boldness and trust that Jesus will do his way, his will, that he will build his kingdom, 